So uh, we had a, a men's slash Father's Day retreat last yesterday. We went to Pelham, North Carolina, and, and did some skeet shooting and some fishing and some fellowshipping. And uh, I'm going to tell you, we got some shooters in here. We do. I want one of them. And the pressure was on me. But uh, we really did. We, had some, we really had a great time of fellowship. We had 23 men come. Had a beautiful day, about an hour drive. And, and w- what we were able to do was establish relationships. This walk that we walk is first with the Lord and then with each other. And so it's important that we establish relationships. I know some men got to know each other that really didn't know each other that well. It's hard to do that in a church setting. But um, I really enjoyed it, and I think all the men did, and we had a great time. And so, uh, but I tell you, I, wanted, I was wondering, uh, John Knight said, were you top gun? He asked me that, and I said, no, I won't top gun. But I tell you who, I, I want to call out a pu- couple people I think probably were top gun, if we're giving out top gun awards. Where's uh, Tanner? He just walked out. I told him to stay in here, and he just walked out. Uh-huh. Maybe he was afraid of what I was going to say. Because he was a shooter. And I was going to know how he could do it with all that hair. I could even see the sights. But he was a shooter, Jeremy. And Chase Farrar, Chase, stand up. He ain't never even shot before. And he did good. But the guy that was just the craziest was, uh, was Jason. Jason, I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name, but stand up so everybody can see you. Jennifer. If we didn't pull, some of us went back early to fix the food, and some of the folks were still shooting, and I told the guy that was running it, I said, tell him to be up here by 1230, and I, I think if we hadn't told people when to be back up, I believe Jason would still be down there shooting. So he really enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it, and it was just a great time together. Father's Day, I want to start out by saying happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Father's Day was founded by a lady named Sonoro Dodd and celebrated on the third Sunday in June for the first time in 1910. Richard Nixon made it an official holiday in 1972. And I read something recently where some people want to change it from Happy Father's Day to Happy Significant Person Day. What kind of nonsense is that? That is nonsense. But, but, it, but it, it stands to reason. Because church, what we have to understand is God ordained three institutions. He ordained the family, he ordained the government, and he ordained the church. And Satan's after all three. But the one he's after the most is the family. Because that's what God established. And dad, he's after your public enemy number one. Because if he, you ever heard this, you cut off the head and the body will die. That's why he's after men so much. Because, God, guys, we have been uniquely ordained by God for an office to be a covering over our children, over our families. He's given us unique authority to use it to be a protector. Not just physically. We live in a world today, and I'm with you. We went out and shot some. I'm with you. You hear men, you see the doormats, and they say, you know, you come across this line. and don't have a thing. So you, if you know, don't know Jesus, you better get ready to because I'm going to arrange the meeting. You ever seen that? Okay, I'm with you. Okay. But how many of you know it's just as important, probably more, to protect those children spiritually? Because Satan's after them. And if he got to go through you to get to them. And we've been uniquely ordained. Let me give you a couple statistics of what fatherless homes look like. 90% of all runaways come out of fatherless homes. 
80% have behavioral disorders, 71% of teen pregnancies, 63% of suicides, and 71% of high school dropouts come out of fatherless homes. One startling bit of research conducted by the Christian Businessmen's Committee found that following, when the father is an active believer, there is about a 75% likelihood that the children will also become active believers. But if only the mother is a believer, this likelihood is dramatically reduced to 15%. Dad, that's why he's after us. That's why he wants to get rid of us. And it's our responsibility. And let me say this, not the state's. You often heard pastors say this. He says he hears something or somebody will say something or do something, make his britches leg roll up. Well, there's something that's said a lot amongst those in the church, and I'm like, maybe you've said it, and I, I don't, I'm not here to make you mad. Don't get mad at me. But I hear this a lot, and when I hear it, I think my, I cut, about as come close to my britches leg rolling up as anything. Well, the problem is when they took Bible reading and prayer out of the schools, Tammy, bring up Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. So God has established his people. He's given them his law. He's given them a land. And he's told them how he wants it to be passed down. And I want you to read it with me. It says, and these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach him who you, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's God's plan for the faith to be passed down. I don't see in there where it says make sure when you send them off to the government schools that they're teaching them right. Or they're training them up. I can promise you right now you don't want the government schools doing anything with your children as it, as it pertains to faith. I attended a meeting recently of some folks that are so concerned about what's happening in the Orange County schools. About the Orange County School Board and some of the stuff that's going on. They're not just not teaching, they're teaching things that are hostile to our faith. But it's incumbent upon us, Dad, to teach them right. But look, my goal here is not to make any dad feel bad. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. Because if there's any one place in my life where I have a, an incredible sense of pride and accomplishment, and it, sometimes a, an incredible sense of failure, like I missed it, it's just being a dad. It's, it's, it's tough. Tammy and I, throughout the kids, uh, as they were growing up, there was many times we would establish, you know, a family devotion. We would get the devotion that the church gives out, or we would use some scripture, and we'd start a devotion. Because that was my responsibility, to get that established. And that thing would go two weeks, it might even go two months. And you know what happens? Colin's got homework after wrestling practice, or Hayden's got this, or I'm just flat tired, or I got off late. And it just kind of goes by the wayside. That happens it happens. And especially when you're in the throes of it, like Michael and Christy are, or Brent and Anne Marie, when you got two small ones, am I right? And you're just trying to keep up with life. I mean, life's busy. You're trying to go, you're trying to work, get your kids to school, make sure you, they have what they need, your church duties, your fa you know, you, you want to have some personal time. Life just gets busy. And it gets in the way sometimes. And there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. And for me, still today, when that happens, I begin to ask myself, I begin to say, Lord, what, what do you want from me? Have you ever asked that? What, what do you require of me, Lord? I mean, what do you want? 
And so if you look at your outline today, the title of the message is, Lord, what do you want from me? What, what do you require from me as a dad, as a man, as a, as a co-worker? All the, what, do you, what do you want, Lord? Well, guess what? We're not the first ones to ask that question. That question's been asked before. Micah 6, 8, which will be our key verse, and we'll, we'll go there in a moment, but I want to set it up. Micah was a prophet. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And I'm going to tell you what, what, the, what the conditions were like there a little bit. They had outward prosperity, but it was only a facade, and it was masking rampant social corruption and idolatry. He, he was on the heels of Amos a little bit. Amos was a social justice prophet. He was very critical of Israel, of how they were, their corrupt court systems, how they were treating the poor. The God we serve is a God of justice. So that's what Micah's about. But in Micah chapter 6, it lays out like a courtroom scene. And God starts out. And he says this. He says, I have something to say. I have a problem with you. With this. He's talking to his children. I've got a problem with you. But I want you to testify against me, and I want you to tell me what I have done so bad to you. What, what have I done so wrong to you? I brought you out of Egypt. I've given you a land. I've fed you. I've kept my hands on you. I've given you great leaders. Testify against me, God says to his people. But then they respond. And they say, Lord, what are we supposed to do? How do we come before you? Do we, do we bring a thousand rams? Do we bring a vat full of oil? Tell me, Lord, what we do. To put that in our current context or our current words, Lord, what do you want? Do, you, do I come to church every time the doors are open? Do I give of my money? Do I give of my time? Do I go on the men's retreats? Do I witness? Do, do, I, do I need to be a good father, a good husband, a good provider? What do you want, Lord, from me? And the Lord answers that question to the prophet Micah. And what he answers to him is just as much for us today as it was then. Even more so because we have Christ and the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says in Micah 6 and 8. He says, he's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice or justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If there's any one thing that's being raved about in our society today, it's this idea of justice. But look what he says. He didn't say talk about justice. He didn't say march for justice. He didn't say go on Facebook about justice. He said do. Do, do, do justice. And we hear so much talk about Racial justice, social justice, economic justice. We even have environmental justice now. And I have some firsthand experience a little bit with the racial justice, particularly as it relates to inequities and disparities in law enforcement. And they're complex issues. There's no easy answer. And there are injustices in our world that we need to deal with. But here's the problem with how we're trying to deal with it and why things keep getting worse. Who's justice? Whose idea of it? Because I'm afraid where we are in our society today, we're where they were in the time of the judges. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. So who's justice? Look at Psalm 19 and 7. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Any justice that we seek that is separated from the law of God is going to do nothing but create more problems than it's going to solve. You want to do justice? You want to do what's right, Dad? You want to do what's right, Mother, Son? This is what's right. And when we separate from this, the further we move away from this, we won't see, and and we're not going to see perfect justice until Christ returns. But how do we do justice? How do we do what's right? That's what that means. Do what is right. But in whose eyes? For us as the believer of Christ, it is what's right in God's eyes. And that's not becoming very popular today. There was a time when our society was very open to that. No more. But it hasn't changed God and it hasn't changed his word. So we do what is right. That's the justice that we do. Next, he says, love mercy. Love mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And you're looking at someone up here and I'm looking at a whole church full of people that you know what you deserve? You deserve death, you deserve the grave, and you deserve hell. I deserve it, you deserve it. Why? Because of Romans 3.23. For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed His perfect law, His perfect standard. But rather than giving me the judgment that I deserve, the wrath that I deserve, He gave me His mercy. And we sang about it this morning. Psalm 136 and 1 says this. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good and His mercy endures forever. To those who know Him, to those who love Him, to those who have their trust in Him, that mercy endures forever. That word endure stuck with me. How many of you have ever felt like you endured with your children? I about had it with these folks. I about had it with these boys. But you endure with them because you love them. God endures with us all the more. And you won't give mercy until you know the mercy that God has given you. When you understand what God has done for me, when I know what God has done for me, what I deserve, then it, wants me, it, it compels me to be merciful with my wife, to be merciful with my children, to be merciful with my coworkers, to give the same mercy that I've received. Jesus tells a parable about an unforgiving debtor. And one of the debtors comes to, he, he owes this man, in our, in our terms it would have been like millions of dollars. And the man demands his money. He says, give me my money. And he says, sir, I can't pay you. He says, well, I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your wife, your children, and everything until you can pay me. And he begs him. He says, please, please, just give me some time. And he has compassion on him and lets him go. That same man goes right out. He finds somebody who owes him $10. And he says, give me my $10. He says, I can't pay you. The Bible says he takes him by the neck and starts to choke him. He says, give me my money. Well, the servants see it, and they go back to the master, and they say, the one that you gave, forgave the millions, he's going after this guy for $10. And then he comes, brings him back, and he says, I showed you all this mercy, but you didn't extend it. God expects us to extend the same mercy he has shown us. To do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You'll never do justly. You'll never do what's right. You won't even come close to doing right. You'll never learn mercy until you understand mercy, until you've walked it humbly with God. One commentator said that is to live and act as consciously under his eye. Think about that. Do you live and act and walk as if you're consciously under God's eye? 
I wish I could say I did all the time, but I, I don't. That's why I need his mercy. But it's to live and to act as consciously under his eye through Christ. Now, at the risk of you saying, well, Larry, I appreciate that three-point plan you just gave me for my life. Thank you. I'm going to walk out this uh, door today, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to love mercy, and I'm going to walk with God. Thank you for that. I will do that. You try to do that apart from the gospel, and you're going to fall flat on your face. And you're going to struggle with it in, in, in light of the gospel. Until you come and surrender yourself to Christ... Let the Holy Spirit come into you. Let Him take the law off the tablets and put them in your heart till you experience the mercy of God, till you know what it is to walk with Him. You see Brother Dan, Brother Don, Brother Morris is not here, Brother Denny. I'm getting there, a little bit of that gray hair is starting to go. You talk to somebody who knows what it is to walk. My dad is here. To walk with God day in and day out in the good times and the bad times, you begin to understand what it really means to walk humbly with God. And it's not always a cakewalk. Sometimes it's very difficult, but there's nothing like it. What does the Lord require of us men? Not just us men, ladies, everyone in here, children, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Lots of dads in the Bible, but what I want to highlight too this morning, the first one I want to highlight is Joshua. Joshua was one of the two scouts that believed the Israelites could defeat the giants in Canaan. Mo Moses sent out 12 scouts. He, he said, go look at the land in Canaan, see if we can take it. Well, 10 of them came back and said, there's no way. I watched a documentary the other day, and I actually sat there and watched that whole thing on Andre the Giant. Anybody remember Andre the Giant? Yeah, not some of you older guys will. Andre the Giant was 7'4", 500 pounds. He was a wrestler. He was a, like a world WWE wrestler. And they showed his hands and holding a kid. This guy was huge. Well, the 10 scouts, all 12 scouts went out, and they saw a bunch of Andre the Giants. And they came back and told Moses, 10 of them did, says, no way, we can't beat these guys. They're huge. There's a bunch of Andre the Giants over there. But two came back, Caleb and Joshua, and said, with God's help, we can. And I don't know what giants you face in your life. Some of you has already faced some giants in your life. But you with, keep your trust in God, and God will see you through. He gave those children of Israel ultimately that promised land. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And he had two, only two, that trusted him. And one of them was Joshua. Because of that, he was a successor to Moses to lead the nation of Israel. When Moses passed away, Joshua took over. He's the one who led the children of Israel over the Jericho, over the Jordan River to the Jericho. And they begin to march around. You probably remember those stories from Sunday school. March seven times till the walls fell. And not only that, there was many other battles, many other battles. And, and Joshua would win and win because he, he trusted in God and God was with him. And he had God's favor. He was a fierce warrior and leader. But like all of us, Joshua would soon die. And before he was going to die, he called his, the nation together. It's called the, the Renewing the Covenant at Shechem. It was a place called Shechem. And the research said it was been a large area where most of the nation of Israel could come. And what he wanted to do was renew the covenant. He wanted to say to the children of Israel before he died, are you going to keep the covenant of Moses? Are you going to remember the law and keep the law and keep God's ways? That was Joshua. As a leader, that was his main concern. Will you be faithful to God? Because he's going to be faithful to you. And in Joshua 24, 15, this is what he said. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, 
Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But he said this, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I'm here to tell you something, dads. You're faced with that exact same thing now today. Joshua said, hey, you got to decide. You better make a choice. You better purpose in your heart like Daniel did. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the, the gods that your father served? Are you going to serve Yahweh, the one true God, who they served on the other side of the Jordan? Or now that you're over here where the Amorites are, where the world is, where the idolaters are, and they begin to tell you how good their way is and how their way is better, and they begin to ridicule your God, which one are you going to serve? Choose it. And that message is for us to choose it. But Joshua stood there. I can see him right there. I can see his wife and his kids with him. But he said, but as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And I tell you, that needs to be a battle cry for men today. That for as me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. The father's response is the father's responsibility to provide spiritual leadership in the home. Guys, we're the one to set the example of things like being in church and walking it out before our children. I talked to you about how many times I failed in those structured devotions and, you know, and things like that. But I'm going to tell you what's more important than that, Dad, is walking that thing out. Letting them see how you treat their mother. Because that son's going to decide how he's going to treat a lady based on how you treat their mother. That young daughter is going to know how a man ought to treat her based on how you treat that mother. Let them see you do it well. Let them see you do it not so well. You know, we can put on two faces. I can be one way in church, and I can be another way the other six days. And I might hide it from a lot of people. I might hide it from the church. But I'm going to tell you who you won't hide it from. You won't hide it from your wife, and you won't hide it from your kids. And I've heard some of these stories. Thank God I've never experienced it. My dad is here. I thank God for his faithfulness, for being raised to know the Lord. But I've heard some stories about some men that were very respected in their church, and everybody thought, oh, this is a good godly guy, and loved him. And they find out that he was abusive. He was a hateful man, an angry man. And those wife and those kids, they deal with that. So guys, it's up to us to walk it out. And we're going to fail. We're not always going to get it right. But that's part of walking it out. Harry Chapin wrote a song in 1974. It's just an iconic song. Now, some of you older guys will know, know about it my age, maybe a little bit younger. But it was called The Cats in the Cradle. How many of you heard that song before? The Cats in the Cradle. For you young folks who've never heard it, particularly if you're a young dad, go home and Google that song. Because it's one of those songs when you listen to it and you sit back, especially as a father, if you've raised your kids, it just makes you think. It just makes you think. It's, it's a great song. And, and it, father, it follows the life of a, of, of a dad and his son is born. My son arrived the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there's planes to catch. There's bills to pay. He said, Dad, that's okay. I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. He turns 10. I give him a ball. He says, hey, thanks, Dad. Come on, let's play. He says, I'd love to, son, if I could find a time. Dad walks away. He says, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. 
Well, the boy becomes a teenager. How many of you know they grow up and they grow up fast? I saw Haley Doherty walk in here. I'm like, oh my gosh, just grown. She was a little girl the last time I saw her. She's grown. And the son comes in. And he says, hey, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? And he says, I'd love to, Dad, but I'd really like to do is have the car keys. Can I have them? See you later, please. And he gets the keys and he leaves. And then the little boy becomes a dad of his own. And it ends, it says, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up the other day. He said, I'd love to see you, son, if you could find the time. He said, I'd love to, Dad, but my new job's a hassle. The kids have the flu. But it's been sure nice talking to you. It's been sure nice talking to you. And he says, when he hung up the phone, it occurred to me, my boy was just like me. He'd grown up just like me. He's watching you, Dad. She's watching you, Dad. They're, going, they're more likely going to be a lot like you. And you know what? That is a huge, huge burden. Don't do it outside of a relationship with Christ, particularly in this culture we live in. Don't do it outside being connected into a church like Bethel. You're going to fail. But God will help you, and the church will help you, and your brothers and sisters, and the Lord will help you. And those people with gray hair who've done it will help you, tell you where they've succeeded, where they've failed. Walk it out before them. We've been ordained by God's design to be a spiritual covering over our home and to bless our children. Look at, um, Michael mentioned this first like, last week. I want you to look at Genesis 48, 14 through 6. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. They were the 12 tribes of Israel. But in this particular passage of Scripture, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, had two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph brings those two boys to the granddad. And guess what, Grandpa? You, you got a place in this too. There's generational blessing and there's generational curses. And you have, a, you have a role in this. I've got a grandson now. And for, it's, now I'm not going to overstep my bounds. You have to be careful there. But where I have my, my role and my biblical role is to still speak into my son's life and when I can, speak into my grandson's life. And what am I going to speak into him? Life. Not death, blessings, not curses. But he brings those two boys to his granddad. And this is what he says. It says, but Israel, his name was Jacob. It hadn't been changed yet. It says, but Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And it was the left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. I won't go into why he crossed his hands. You study that for yourself. It says, he blessed Joseph and said... The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads. Guys, God has so uniquely ordained us, and we've missed it. We've missed it in our American culture to bless our children. When they're young, don't be afraid to put your hands on them and bless them. Just to bless them, just to ask God to protect them. Protect their hearts, their minds, their souls. You know, Colin and Hayden slept in the same room when they were little. They, you know, you get older, they, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't sleep together. They don't have their own rooms. And if they had woken up a couple times in the middle of the night, they would have been like, what in the world is that man right there doing? Because it wasn't uncommon when they were asleep to go up there and lift my hands to heaven and just say, God, protect my kids. I, you know, you can feel kind of silly doing it, but God honors that, particularly as the dad. 
watch over my kids, protect them physically, protect them spiritually, protect them emotionally. There's so much going on out there. Dad, exercise that authority that you have. In Genesis 49 and 29, before Jacob died, he called all 12 of his sons to him. All 12 of them. And this is what it says in Genesis 49 and 28. He said, and all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So Jacob brings all 12 of his sons. How many of you know dads, moms? You know what's unique about each one of your children. And he knew he spoke something into each one of those boys' lives. And we can do that today. I see that you're gifted athletically. I see that you have charisma. I see that you have some leadership in you. I see you have musical talent. I see this. Speak the life over them. There's the whole world is speaking death today. Speak life over your children. Speak encouragement over your children. But be careful. Be careful how you do it. Ephesians 6 and 4 says this, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You know, it's hard sometimes not as a dad to say, this is my house, these are my rules, and you're going to obey them. And there's a time for that. There's a time for discipline. But how's it done? How's it carried out? I'm not going to pretend to know the dynamics of your home or the dynamics of your children. But clearly, because this, this admonition is given to dads in a couple places, if we're not careful, Dad, we can provoke our children to, to wrath. We can lead them straight to rebellion against God. But that's for you to parse out in your home and in your family. You know the heart in which you correct your children and how you deal with your children. Lastly, Noah. He was, an, he was the builder of the ark. We know Most of us know that story. Look at what Genesis 9, how it describes Noah. It says, he was a just man, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what Micah said. He was a just man, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. He was a hardworking man. Talking about trusting God, he got ridiculed, ridiculed, ridiculed. They said, the flood's coming. God said, build the ark. He's building it. All the people are coming up and laughing at him. It ain't rained in years. Noah, what are you doing? But he trusted God. Kept building the ark. Kept building the ark. And there's people who stand on national stages and in local pulpits today. And they say, judgment's coming. And people are laughing. And they say, judgment's coming. And people's laughing. But the judgment's coming. Just as sure as it did then. It's coming. But God's merciful right now. So we hear that, that story about Noah a lot, but there's one we don't hear much about. I don't think this is taught a lot at, at, at the little kids in Sunday school. and probably shouldn't be. But it's, it's Noah's sin in Genesis 9, 18 through 27. And I'm not, I'm not going to read all that. I'm just going to summarize it. After the water seceded, the, the ark landed. They came out and began to repopulate the earth and work on the earth again. Apparently, Noah was a farmer. He, he worked a vineyard. He had a little too much. He got, got into his own product, got drunk, and passed out in his tent, naked. That's what happened. And it was wrong. But that's not the overarching biblical principle in that story. Because what happens, Noah had three sons. He had Ham, he had Jephthah, and he had Shem. And the Bible says that Ham went into the tent and he saw his dad there. And rather than honoring his father, 
rather than covering his nakedness, he walks out of that tent and he goes to his two brothers. And I'm not sure what he said, but maybe he said something like this. Come look at dear old dad. Come look at Mr. Just Man. Righteous in his generation. Walk with God. Yeah, come take a look at him now. Why would, why would he do that? Did he resent his dad? Did he resent him having to build that ark? Did he resent the stand he took for God? Did, I, I, we'll never know the answer to that. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he focused on his dad's failure. But here's what Shem and Jephthah did. I imagine they looked at him and said, what are you doing? And the Bible says they took a sheet and they put it on their shoulder and they walked backwards into the tent and covered their dad's nakedness. And when Noah woke up, he was angry at what Ham had done. And the Bible says that he cursed Canaan. Canaan was Ham's son. We don't know why it was Canaan and not Ham. But after that, if you follow the generations that come from Ham, most of them were enemies to Israel. What does that mean for me, Brother Larry? I'm telling you here, this is for the children. This is not for the dads. You better honor that father. You might say, well, Dad, Larry, you don't know what kind of man he's been. You're right, I don't. And I'm going to tell you, after 28 years in law enforcement, I have seen what an angry, brutal, hostile man, what kind of damage he can inflict in a home. I've been in them. I've seen the children cowering. I've seen a wife abused. So I know what kind of damage can be done. But I know this, somewhere in there, there has to be some forgiveness. It may not be reconciliation. But you've got to honor the office of that father. Because God has uniquely ordained it. He's uniquely ordained it. I'm going to ask Matt and the team, if they will, to come on up to the stage. Charles Payne. Charles Payne is a contributor to Fox News. And they were actually doing that this morning. I was watching it, and they were, they were, they were talking to people. Like this morning, I, they talked to Brett Farr. They talked to a lot of people for some input, some advice about Father's Day. What would you say to your dad, or what advice do you have about Father's Day? Well, many years ago, Charles Payne was on there. And they asked Charles Payne, to said, Charles, tell us about your dad. And this is what Charles said. Charles said, my father left my mother and me and our family when we were very young. And he said, I resented it for him for a long time. He said, but then I became a dad myself. And after I became a dad myself, I tried to find my father, and I found him. He said, and when I sat down and talked to him, I found out some things about him I didn't know. I found out how life had been hard on him. I found out how he was a Vietnam veteran. He said, it didn't excuse the things he did, but it changed my perspective a little bit. And this was the advice he had. He said, give your dad a break. And I'm here to tell you, young person, if you're here and your parents are here, your dad, particularly your dad's here, maybe he ain't got it right all the time. I can guarantee you he has not gotten it right all the time. Give him a break. Because when you become a dad, you'll understand. You'll understand. And what I'll say to you today, if you're here today and by any measure, your dad or a granddad or a stepdad or whatever, the, the, the father figure in your life, taught you in any measure about the things of the Lord, you need to fall on your knees and thank God because that's the greatest thing they will ever give you. It's better than money. It's better than cars. It, everything. And you won't fully appreciate that till you have them of your own. So I'm, my challenge to you, yes, dads, it's, this has been difficult. The Scripture gives us a high standard, but you know why it gives us a high standard? Because it points us to Christ. We know we can't do it on our own. 
but there's also a high standard for you as children. Because the scripture says, honor your mother and your father that your days might be long on the earth. Matt mentioned this morning, we have, a, we have a heavenly father. And unfortunately, so many times it's easy to, or it would be difficult maybe to understand the heavenly father if we're looking at it through the filter of our earthly father. Particularly if we haven't had a very good earthly father. And our earthly fathers can fail us. They will fail us. But our Heavenly Father never will. Jesus came to show us the Father. In John 14 and 9, when they asked Him to show Him the Father, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and, and, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? When we see everything that Jesus did, we see the heart of our Father. I think every time I think about that, the first thing that comes to my mind is the, is the adulterous woman. Caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Stone her. These angry men chasing her with a stone, ready to kill her. Had every right to do it by the Jewish law. And Jesus steps in between her and them and says, Let you without sin throw the first stone at her. Just show the heart of God. Shows the heart of God. Look at how he dealt. He was gracious to the sinner. He was pretty tough on the self-righteous. Pretty tough on them, but very gracious to the sinner. God's still gracious to the sinner. I thank God that he's still gracious to the sinner. If you're here today and you're a sinner, that's what the Bible calls us if we've never put our trust in him. He wants to extend his mercy to you. But he requires a response from you. It does. You have to respond to the, to the call. And it's done through His Spirit. And if you're sitting out there today and there's something tugging at your heart that says, i, I got to get something right. Maybe you've known the Lord. You've drifted away. That's the Holy Spirit pulling at you. Don't, don't ignore it. He wants to be merciful to you. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, and that Father will never fail you. And I'm just here to tell you, dads, moms, children, if you'll get that relationship right, if that's the most important relationship in your life, these relationships right here, boy, they go so much better. I wish they could tell you they're perfect. I wish I could tell you your children are going to be little angels. You know that's not true. You've raised them, you know that's not true. And neither am I. Neither am I. I need His mercy. But you'll find those relationships go much better. I'm going to ask every one of you if you'll bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. If you're here this morning and God's dealt with you, this altar is open. People, you come down. We'll pray with you. We'll pray with you. The altar is open. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for every dad that's here today with your children. I know Matt's on the stage. I'm on the stage. I'm going to come try to get down here a little closer. I'm going to see if we've got a microphone. If you'll come up, if your father's here, 
I want the families to come up. I want the wife to come up. Any of the families, if you'll come, and let's just stand around the altar. Stand with your family. Stand with your dad. Stand with your wife. Just come and stand.